Hey, Jay, what's up with the Hellfire Club these days? Are they even still around? Maybe? They haven't shown up in a pretty long time. Shaw's still around, though, right? Well, he popped up briefly in the Mighty Thor, but since then he's MIA. So who's running the club? You know, I think Sunspot might technically still be Lord Imperial, but if so, he's a really absentee Lord Imperial. Wait, Sunspot is running AIM and the Hellfire Club? Like I said, the latter's really just a name, and honestly, I think it's more that the current administration just didn't think to depose him because he never shows up to anything. The current administration? Uh, yeah, you know, Cade Kilgore, Wilhelmina Kensington, Manuel Anduque, and Baron Maximilian von Katzeneinbogen. What's their deal? Well, let's see. Kilgore is a super genius and an international arms dealer. Kensington is a martial arts expert and a collector of rare, exotic, and exceptionally dangerous animals. And Duque is involved in the slave trade, owns most of New York, and has interests in extraterrestrial gambling. And Katzeneinbogen is an unseated Bavarian prince and the last living descendant of the original Dr. Frankenstein, as well as a mad scientist in his own right. Huh. Oh, and they're all like 12 years old. What?! I'm Jay Rachel Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 116 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. Hey, I'm back. what I miss? Yeah, welcome back. Well, Max and I talked about the X-Men anime, and we watched the whole X-Men anime. That seems like a lot. Yeah, it was rough, man. I'm so sorry. You have made a great sacrifice for our nation and for our world, really. Well, how was Florida? Did you fight Kirk Connors? No, no, no. The X-Men did that one time. That's why I asked. You. Right. I did not. But I got to see some friends and some family, and that worked out pretty well. And I read the entire both uh, Weir and Philippus and Kyle and Yost runs of New X-Men, which was actually really good. I read that uh, while I was on the plane, both to and from. Oh, sweet. That's the one with, like, Surgeon Prodigy, right? Yeah. And it actually kind of bugs me that those characters aren't around more. I mean, we saw Prodigy in Young Avengers. Really briefly. And Hellion and Rock. Oxlide and Anil are like running around in Extraordinary. But you know, Surge, Surge was the leader of the team for a long time and she's just sort of faded into the background and that makes me super sad. But it's a really fun run and I recommend it. It's also got pre-Gregland Pixie, which is definitely the best version of that character, if I recall. Like when she's all like creepy and little and fey looking. She was a weird little fairy monster. She was great. Yes. Oh man. Slightly unsettling Pixie is definitely my favorite version of that character. For serious. Okay, so now that we are both here again, we're going to jump back into Uncanny X-Men, right? Right, and I think this is actually our first X-Men episode since Inferno. It totally is. Since it's been a little while, let's do the usual previously on X-Men. Currently on the team are Storm, Wolverine, Colossus, Rogue, Psylocke, Havoc, Dazzler, and Longshot. They are still based in the Outback. They're working out of the old Reaver base. They're still functionally invisible to any kind of surveillance technology or electronics. And chronologically, in terms of preceding episodes, the issues that we're covering today take place to either side of Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown. Yes, we finally found out how that chronology worked. So thank you, listeners, and thank you also us reading the relevant couple of panels. Yes, thank you, Chris Claremont, for putting really, really clear continuity markers in these issues that we're talking about today. Exactly. And these issues, to clarify, for those following along at home, are Uncanny X-Men number 244 through 247. We were talking this morning about the aftermath of Inferno and how different it is for the different teams. With the New Mutants and X-Factor, they're facing really massive shifts to their status quo. And Inferno happened in their backyard. They lost teammates who were central parts of the team. Excalibur and the X-Men are in different positions because they kind of have the option and the necessity, in fact, of just of retreating away, of going, they have somewhere to go back to. Yeah, and I mean, not that there weren't consequences from Inferno, there absolutely were. I mean, specifically, Havoc lost the woman he very briefly loved, Madeline And he Pryor. learned that you should never trust a beautiful woman with a mysterious agenda, especially when she's a gorgeous redhead with a dark past. Oh, wait. Especially don't trust, you know, multiple of them in a row. Although I guess Layla was blonde. And Polaris had green hair. Is there a name for someone with green hair? A green? Is that how that works? I don't know. I'm just thinking of Scarlet, since we know for sure that Meltdown's after Inferno. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Havoc's life is terrible. But Longshot also has been doubting himself since he got possessed. Now, that's going to come more into play in a little bit, but that is sort of an undercurrent here. The other X-Men, on the other hand, seem to have bounced back just fine. Actually, no, one of them hasn't. Rogue's been having a rough time more from what happened to her in Genosha than from Inferno, but Inferno has effectively upset the already uneasy balance between the Rogue and Carol Danvers personas that are currently sharing her head. And to recap, Carol Danvers, which is to say currently Captain Marvel, formerly Ms. Marvel, 
has been a personality inside Rogue's head basically since Rogue's first appearance when she permanently absorbed her psyche. Or rather, the version of her that she absorbed at that point has, because there's also a version of Carol Danvers in Carol Danvers' body, who I believe at this point is binary and is running around with starjammers. What you just said, I'm pretty sure, is a summation of why we are doing this podcast, because comics, X-Men, damn. Right. Speaking of X-Men, that brings us to 244, which marks the first appearance of an X-Men that many of you may recognize, especially those of you who grew up watching the 90s cartoon. We are officially on the debut of Jubilee. Jubilation Lee, everyone's favorite chili fries, eating mall rat with weird fireworks powers that vary greatly in how they're portrayed from issue to issue, and a different outfit than we're used to. But yeah, this is Jubilee, and she is so great from like panel number one. This is one of two issues that are basically post-Inferno palette cleansers. They're not the usual, you know, the X-Men go out angst, play baseball, reconnect. They're just two ridiculous one-shots in a row. The first one is called Ladies' Night. The cover features the female X-Men huddling horrified. No, we've survived Inferno, beaten Freedom Force, the Sentinels, and Magneto. But how do we beat the M-Squad? And I love how gloriously self-consciously tropey this is. Like, these are not cringing characters. None of these four women would, you know, be doing this huddling terrified thing, especially against a bunch of low-rent Ghostbusters, but the cover- I was gonna say, and the M-Squad are a credible threat to precisely nobody. Themselves, maybe. Also dead? Uh, well, they get better. You know, Inferno is ambiguous, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. I want to add really quickly to folks to whom this sounds familiar who haven't read the issues but who watch a lot of TV, Leverage did a deliberate sort of spin and lampoon on this in one of their later seasons. Wait, on the M-Squad? No, on the splitting the team up by gender and then having the two stories, two episodes in a row. Oh, okay. That play with that. It's a fun pair of episodes. Excellent. So back to Jubilee, though, because that's who we're going to talk about most here. Jubilee we first see when she is hanging out at the Hollywood Mall. She is doing tricks for a crowd of adoring and somewhat skeptical and worried about mutants shoppers. And she is awesome. She's clearly well known by the other folks around there on the mall regulars. She's got really terrific 50s like teddy girl gang hair. Okay, uh, you use that phrase in the notes and I don't actually know what that means. Oh my god! Dude, you need to Google teddy girls because this was the thing that was in the 50s, like early 50s, and it was women who basically dressed like early Rachel Summers formal wear, so like baggy men's suits, basically the hairstyle Jubilee's got here. Okay, that's sort of uh, shellacked mini pompadour kind of thing. Yeah, and they hung around looking disaffected. She definitely does that, but she's also got the pattern down. Like, she's clearly working for tips. I love the way she's interacting with the crowd here. In case anyone's curious, what we have here are articulate, quasi-animate transitory plasmoids. Pieces of raw energy that come what I call, do what I tell them, and take a hike on Skidoo Q. And you can tell she's just been practicing all this. And I mean, Jubilee's no dummy, don't get me wrong, but I'm pretty sure she looked up those scientific words just to add to the pattern, not because she actually knows what they literally mean. Yeah, I mean, Jubilee gets written as an airhead a lot. And I think that's a shame because she is smart as hell. She's super, super, super resourceful. It's just that she allocated her skill points to Streetwise rather than Academia. Right. And actually, that brings me to something I was hoping to talk about, which is her in comparison to Kitty Pride, because the two are often compared to one another since they're the young, spunky female X-Men who have Wolverine as a sort of mentor figure, but they are so different. Yeah, I mean, I think you just described their entire list of commonalities. Yeah, it's just so strange that they're often considered to be the same character. And part of that, honestly, I think, is that in the 90s X-Men animated series, Jubilee in some ways took the place of Kitty Pride. Kitty Pride never shows up in that entire cartoon, as far as I recall. Yeah, Jubilee in the animated series, absorbs a lot of Kitty's attributes. But I think the other reason that they tend to get compared a lot is that they play very similar roles relative to the team. Early Kitty is the point of entry character. She's the one who's looking at the X-Men as an outsider, as more of a peer to the readers, or intended to be more of a peer to the readers. And that's the role that Jubilee is very much playing, again, early on in her tenure with the X-Men. Yeah, although Jubilee is so much more of, like, a a mall punk outlaw. Like, I love how anti-authoritarian she is here, that she's just being chased by mall cops. Which brings up the other frequent comparison that Jubilee gets, and that is to Boom Boom. I think that one makes a little bit more sense, because personality-wise, they're much more similar to one another. Yes and no. I mean, they're both kind of mall rat kids, but they've got very, very different pasts and origins. And they're cocky, but they're cocky in very different ways and for very different reasons. I mean, they've got respectively the kind of cockiness and confidence that you get respectively from the presence or absence of privilege. Jubilee is the kid who's grown up being told you can do anything, you can be anything. And Boom Boom is the kid who's grown up being told you can't be anything you can't do anything, you're nothing, you don't matter. 
And what for Jubilee is, you know, just internalizing and extending that is for Boom Boom pushing back against it. And so Jubilee has a lot of swagger, but she isn't rebellious and she isn't angry in the ways that Boom Boom is. I think that's a really good point. Yeah, because they are both runaways. But Jubilee's family life, as near as I can tell, was pretty decent before her parents died in a car accident, which we find out about later in this issue. Whereas Boom Boom comes from a severely abusive background. Yeah, and Boom Boom also comes from the rural south. Jubilee grew up in L.A. going to a very, very good private prep school. Again, the difference in those backgrounds is, I think, fairly critical, and also the difference in their early lives and relative relationships to their team. I mean, both of them have ended up facing things that teenagers shouldn't have to, but a lot of Boom Boom's story is about basically ending up dropped into a lot of adult responsibility very early. And I think the evolution of X-Force is a great example of that. And Jubilees is one of being the kid relative to adults more than that. And then with more of a school-based peer group when you get her in Generation X. And she really is a kid here. I mean, I think it's important to remember a lot of the X-Men are young. Like everyone always forgets that Rogue is 19-ish or thereabouts, for instance. Yeah, but Jubilee, is Colossus, right? Uh, maybe like 20 or so by this point. But yeah, Jubilee is super young. She's got to be what, maybe 14 years old? Yeah, I'd, I'd put her at 13 or 14. And I like that she's drawn that way. I also like that she's drawn in this issue by Mark Silvestri, who's still the regular artist for now, as looking like she could feasibly be Chinese-American because the character is and she's so often drawn as like super white. I mean, the animated series definitely had that problem. Well, not only what you're describing this case, but he also does it without relying on racist visual semiotics, which is another problem you see really commonly with the representation of non-white characters in, in visual media and in comics. Oh, see figure one, Psylocke, very soon. Hmm. Often, yeah. I'm continually impressed by how fully formed she is at this point. We mentioned that she's not wearing her default outfit. She's not wearing the outfit that's going to be just indelibly associated with her. Her hair's a little different, but aesthetically, like, she's very obviously the same character with very obviously the same taste and very obviously the same body language and attitude and voice. Speaking of fully formed, now the astute listener slash reader may remember that this is not the first time we've seen a character named Jubilee. In fact, back in the day in New Mutants Annual Number 2, the Brat Pack, who were, I think, mostly Daredevil characters like a bunch of kids. Yeah, they were sort of an indirect reference, I think, to Walter Simonson's Star Slammers way back when. And they're also based off the Little Rascals, which is to say our gang, because the references, they just keep on coming. It's a lot going on with these kids. They got turned by Mojo and his folks into sort of teenagers superheroes, and Darla of the Brat Pack became a character named, you guessed it, Jubilee, with pretty much the same power. She did, like, light show fireworky stuff. And even the line that Jubilation Lee has in this issue... My name is Jubilee, because with me, every day is a celebration! ...really echoes what Darla says when she becomes Jubilee back in that annual. Courtesy of Jubilee, whose every move is a celebration. I mean... Claremont has a lot of ideas. I think for one individual, he probably has more ideas than any comics creator ever has. And that does mean occasionally, if he likes an idea, didn't get to use it as much, he'll just bring it back. See Maddie Pryor. Yeah, there have been a few characters named Madeline Pryor. Who is herself named after the lead singer of what? Steel Eye Span, as I recall. Yeah. Oh, man. Again, the references just keep on coming. But I am totally grateful that Claremont did that because this Jubilee, Jubilation Lee, is freaking great. Now, this Jubilee is also the scourge of the Hollywood Mall. She has been hanging out there nonstop. And to the immense consternation of the surprisingly well-armed mall security guards for a long time, and they have had enough. Not only is she a mutant, not only is she using powers, which to be fair, are kind of destructive. Like, you would not be cool with kids setting off firecrackers in a mall either. Everyone forgets, like, they think Jubilee's powers are terrible. Fireworks will put out your eye. They'll put out both your eyes. They'll give you more eyes and then put those additional eyes out. They're jerks. Yeah, no, fireworks. They're dangerous. And not only is she using these indoors in in a mall, but she's a runaway. She is an unaccompanied teenager. She is clearly on the lam from something. And they have had enough, but they can't stop her because A, all of the mall kids love her and they will totally jump to her defense. Again, this is a good Boom Boom parallel. There's a chase scene that reminds me a lot of the scene with X-Factor trying to chase down Boom Boom in an arcade. Oh, yeah, yeah. But she is much, much better than the mall cops. And so they decide they are going to call in professionals. They're going to call in our good old friends, M-Squad. Now, the last time we saw the M-Squad was during Inferno. They were some sort of paranormal investigators, very, very, very directly based on the Ghostbusters, who came to check things out and ended up seemingly getting eaten by an elevator. Apparently, they survived that. Somehow, we're not really sure how, and have now left behind the East Coast and paranormal investigation for the West Coast and filling the mutant hunting gap left when X-Factor was revealed as not really being mutant hunters. What they have managed to do is retrieve their ghost hunting equipment, which has somehow been demonically modified 
modified or switched out with mutant hunting equipment, because sure, why not? That is also still very literally and directly the Ghostbusters equipment. Science! I really love that one of them looks just like Edna Mode. Yeah, she's my favorite. I completely agree. Actually, the designs on the M-Squad, we'll put this up in the as-mentioned, but they are a lot of fun. What I also enjoy is that on the brochure that the mall cops are looking at, which they have for some reason, at the bottom it says, call now and get a free stray toaster, which is a nice little reference to Bill Sienkiewicz's Stray Toasters series. Yeah, that's quite a comic. Oh man, I would summarize Stray Toasters, but I don't think people can actually do that. Speaking of mutants, what are the X-Men up to while Jubilee is fleeing the M-Squad? The X-Men are dealing with chaos off in the outback like from get smart oh man an x-men get smart crossover i would watch the hell out of that in oh, fact who would the focal characters be i don't know but it just occurred to me that that thing where you go through all the doors in the x-men movies and it ends up going to that thing with the x that turns and then locks the door is very similar to the intro to get oh, smart yeah. which itself is very similar to the get smart referencing intro to mystery science theater 3000 and now i want someone to put together a montage that just links one to another to another and just has the endless sequence of doors this would be a great i uh, bet someone's already done that yes if not around. then that would uh, be amazing listeners we charge you with this task we believe in you but no i i'm, I'm thinking actually you know max is general survival is very long shoddy you know kind like of. he's he's got the protagonist and vulnerability thing going on where he's just nowhere near confident enough to still be alive so now we're gonna have maxwell smart with the bandolier a lot of pouches and an impressive blonde mullet i feel okay about this this is gonna get a further crossover component when we get to the next issue speaking of long shot but there's apparently a very specific archetype that shows up in multiple shows but anyway back to the x-men in the outback where, as you were saying, chaos, but not that chaos, is underfoot. Right. This giant bed flies out a window and Dazzler zaps it, but she accidentally zaps Storm as well, who falls into a building that houses a bathtub with Betsy Braddock in it. And I love the comic timing here as Storm is just dunked in the bathtub. So Betsy getting interrupted while being dignified, tranquil, and wholly or mostly naked is kind of becoming a thing. Right, because that happened previously when there was a fight in the outback and she was modeling nude for Colossus's painting. Yeah, or at least, well, no, she's modeling draped. Oh, draped, you know, okay. Now, the source of this stuff that's going on in the outback is Rogue. Rogue is furious because Carol Danvers, while in control of the body, has redecorated their bedroom. Is that an ultra-modern style or is it just a really bizarre style? I don't really remember 1989 well enough to know for sure. You know, it's Carol chic. Definitely not Rogue's, you know, Southern Belle uh, style that we've seen before. Uh, there's no mosquito netting over the bed? Uh, no, no. Which Are there mosquitoes in the outback? I feel like there must be pterodactyls or something. Yeah, I sort of assume that any animal that exists elsewhere in the world exists in a larger and more bloodthirsty form in Australia. That's certainly what I've been led to believe. But we digress. Point being, I really feel for what's going on with Rogue and Carol Danvers here. Because ever since what happened in Genosha, where Rogue was imprisoned by the guards while she was powerless, and not quite as sexually assaulted, but certainly menaced, Carol Danvers' personality has been taking over more and more. Dazzler decides that there's only one thing to cure what ails them. That they've got cabin fever, they're stuck in the outback, it's terrible, uncivilized conditions... What they clearly need to do is go to the mall. Everyone forgets that Dazzler's kind of the heart of the team at this point, but she's also a little shallow and a little materialistic, so her trying to bring the team back together through the application of capitalism is completely in character. I love Alison Blair. Yeah, I mean, we have to remind ourselves of what we're really fighting for here. Truth, justice, and 50% off at JCPenney's. The other thing about Dazzler, you know, you describe her as the heart of the team, but I kind of think of her as a little more of the steamroller of the team. <laughs> you can be both. She's the character who sort of assumes that everyone shares precisely her priorities and values, or at least will be won over to them when they see how ideal and perfect and such they are. And so obviously this is the thing that will fix anything, even if no one else actually wants to do it. And all the other ex-ladies do go along, so via Gateway, they are off to, coincidentally, the exact same mall that Jubilee's at. Man, this is actually fairly early in the grand tradition of X-Men at malls. This is still sort of being established as the place that X-Men go to blow off steam, and especially ex-ladies. But I sort of think of this as one of the formative escapades. I completely agree, yeah. Along with the New Mutant stuff. So at the mall, they run around, they go shopping. Carol still has Rogue's body and gets her hair styled and buys, oh my god, they all buy amazing clothes. This is the late 80s, and boy, is it ever the late 80s. Mark Silvestri does love drawing a good fashion show. I feel like Mark Silvestri is wasted on superheroes, and what he needs to be drawing, based on the art here, based on his art throughout this run, is like kind of cookie-cutter but charming rom-com. You know, some good romance comics, which is a genre I think should totally come back, and it's starting to, and that's awesome. He'd be great for them. Like, I feel like, you know, it should be something involving, like, Christian Slater and Michelle Pfeiffer and, like... 
kicky red heels and a mini dress on the cover and someone looking really surprised. <laughs> I love this plan. I, I don't know if this movie actually exists, but I did just describe like the generic cover of every rom-com made between like 1985 and 1993. But yeah, so they go around getting makeovers, buying new clothes, and they end up in a place called Hot Bods, which the narration describes as the McBurgers of Night Spots. Okay, first of all, that is the best burn ever. Second of all... This is literally a strip club in the mall. Like, it's a strip club with male strippers in a fucking shopping mall. California is not like the rest of us, y'all. I've lived in the Pacific Northwest, but maybe it's different down by L.A. I sort of assume it must be. They sell hard liquor in the Trader Joe's there. Uh, Well, there you go. But yeah, it's a great scene. Like, uh, one of the women pays off one of the strippers to dance with Storm, and she finally gets on stage. Dazzler does. Dazzler pays off one of the strippers to drag Storm on stage, and Storm's totally down with it. It's actually really, really charming. And after all the doom and gloom we've seen in Inferno and, you know, the last few years of X-Men, this is so refreshing. Alas, before they can tip him adequately, which you should always do. Yes. And politely. I'm not going to go into strip club etiquette, but it's important. Anyway, before they can enact the proper strip club etiquette, the tranquil scene is shattered by the violent arrival of none other than M-Squad. M-Squad is chasing and has successfully captured Jubilee in one of their anti-mutant beams and is attempting to suck her into a ghost trap. Yeah, you know, one of those uh, pieces of equipment that you mentioned were corrupted by demons, this is that. And I love a little bit before when they're talking about using this equipment because not everybody is on board. Not to worry. We have the will, we have the skill, and we have the technology. Which we don't really comprehend. Not here, Dr. Snodgrass. Not now. And I love that. Dr. Snodgrass is the formerly mentioned Edna Mode-looking person, and she is my favorite of the M-Squad. But yeah, the equipment basically comes to life and starts wreaking all holy hell everywhere. Not Inferno-style come to life, just sort of these are powers we don't understand. Man, where is Walter Peck when you actually need him? Unsung hero of Ghostbusters. That guy had a good heart, he was just a jerk. We are pro-EPA on this podcast. So there's a big fight. The X-Men get involved and do manage to shut down the out-of-control rampaging semi-demonic equipment, thus saving Jubilee and presumably the rest of the Mallgoers. Having concluded their mission of shopping, saving the world, fighting knockoff Ghostbusters, etc., the X-Ladies head home, but Jubilee sees them go and is able to jump through their portal at the last minute and stow away with them to the outback, where she will hang out hiding in the back of the complex and trying on their clothing when they're not home for the next several issues. So Jubilee's been a runaway for a while. She's been living in this mall. Now she realizes that the mall cops are after her enough to call the freaking M-Squad, and she's just met these four incredibly badass, fearless, classy, brave, humorous, etc. women, and she's like, hell yeah, whatever they're having, I want some too. Let's go make this happen. Which, again, is a weirdly boom-boom evocative moment I'm thinking at the beginning of Fallen Angels, her fuck this, I'm in trouble, hey, magic portal, boom. Yeah, pretty much. So, okay, we've had our focus on the female half of the X-Men, so now it's time for the dudes with number 245 titled simply, MEN! 245 is a significant issue for a number of reasons, but one of them is that it marks the official debut on the X-Line of an artist whose name you probably already know, but who is, depending on your perspective, either famous or infamous for his impact on the X-Universe. That's right. We are looking at some of the first X-Art by Rob Liefeld himself. The first X-Art, I think. This is the first X-Book issue he drew, isn't it? He'll later be on The New Mutants as the ongoing artist, but for now, I think you're right. He's doing a fill-in. Okay, so I've kind of been a Rob Liefeld detractor in the past. When I was a kid, I was actively mad at him, like, as a person for what I saw as ruining my favorite book, The New Mutants. In retrospect, it was more complicated than that, but his art here... It's actually fine. It's actually enjoyable and appropriate and funny, and he's the right artist for this issue, and I was not expecting to say that. So he's kind of got a John Romita Jr. thing going, where at this point, he's a perfectly serviceable fill-in and superhero artist, and you can see the beginnings of what are going to become incredibly distracting visual affectations and themes in his art here, but they're not enough to take over yet. He reminds me a little bit of Brett Blevinson that he's a very sort of cartoonish, exaggerated artist at this point. But he's working a lot more cleanly. And yeah, he's perfectly solid. He's drawing backgrounds. He's drawing feet. His mouths are a little bit wonky. His faces are sometimes a little bit wonky. I really like his Wolverine, actually. His Wolverine looks kind of awesome. I also like his Colossus, who is unrealistically gigantic here. I mean, the dude's got to be four feet wide. But, you know, given the comic tone of the issue, him squeezing into chairs and way bigger than all the people around him, it kind of works. It kind of works for the humor. I can't handle the way he draws Colossus's mouth, but... Otherwise, yeah, absolutely. 
Also, you mentioned that Havoc looks a lot like Jack Burton. He does. He has weirdly mullety hair and he has sporadic two-day beard that comes and goes from panel to panel. And he's wearing just like a dirty tank top when we first see him and scowling. Yeah, he's totally Jack Burton at the beginning. I feel like Jack Burton is kind of generally better adjusted than Havoc. Uh, Probably true. Alex Summers, his life is rough. But anyway, this issue opens in space, where a bunch of aliens are giving a speech to an assembled multitude of many, many, many different types of aliens about conquering Earth. There are so many different references in this crowd, like one of the aliens actually says in the corner, bet you can't name everybody here. So who are we we able to definitely pin down? We've got Alf, Boba Fett, Yoda, Jabba the Hutt, E.T., Hawkman, the alien Xenomorph, and Jabba's advisor with the big head tentacles. I used to know his name, him too. And that's just off the top of our heads. Like, I'm guessing there are a bunch of references that we are missing. And between that and between the fact that the credits have blah, 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 and gratuitous violence and destruction all running through the people's names. It's very clear the tone this issue is going to take. If last one was kind of a delightful romp, then this one is just ridiculous. Yeah, Tom DeFalco is credited as, I believe, Master Bomber here. Right, exactly. And so, you know, as this big speech is being given, we have this sort of minor archivist, this computer alien guy, off in another room, learning about Earth, the planet that's supposedly going to be invaded, and realizing, wait, they fended off the Kree, the Skrulls, all these other alien races. Fucking Galactus! And at this point, the archivist gives us a what? Which is worthy of me. Like, if I wasn't a podcaster and a sysadmin, I would be an alien archivist, but then I'd probably get killed, so maybe I won't do that. But regardless. Dubiously, fortunately for the aliens... They've got a secret weapon. They've got the gene bomb. Specifically the J-E-A-N bomb, which is a nude, I think, version of Jean Grey in like a big tank, which they describe thusly. It possesses the power to fatally disrupt any and all relationship. Personal, professional, organic, inorganic, macro, micro, whatever, down to the most primally subatomic molecular networks. Her mere presence will dissolve the most loving bonds, prompt brother to slay brother, and boon companions to tear themselves apart. Is it me or is this Chris Claremont just holding up two birds directly at Marvel Editorial for bringing Jean Grey back and messing with all of his plot lines? Yeah, but they've got like little smiley faces drawn on them. No, I'm surprised that we don't have a ray gun called like the Jim Shooter. Oh man, what would the Jim Shooter do? That's awesome. What wouldn't it do? Good point. There would be Beyonders involved. Someone would have to teach them to poop. It would be bad times. Oh, yeah. I like the idea of the gym shooter basically being the precise opposite of Spider-Jerusalem's Bell Disruptor pistol. It just teaches you to poop. (laughs) To do it correctly, because Spider-Man knows these things. That plot point is really the podcasting gift that keeps on giving. Thank you, Jim Shooter, for that. It's not just the podcasting gift. It's the Marvel continuity gift. It's found its way back into the comics. It's always there. It's always with us. Somewhere in the multiverse, somewhere in the eternal present of fiction, Spider-Man is teaching the Beyonder to poop. You know that speech from Return of the King where Samwise is trying to cheer Frodo up and talks about the stories that count, the stories you come back to? I think this is our equivalent of that, basically. I mean, honestly, I think that's what Tolkien was predicting. That's pretty much what he was going for. He was just saying it all Middle-earthy. Someday, Frodo... Spider-Man will teach the Beyonder to poop. (laughs) What have we done in this episode? What have we done? What we always do, Miles, turn certain death into a fighting chance for life. So anyway, the archivist, the what guy, runs up to the alien leaders to tell them what he's found out and, of course, gets shot down by their guards, so there's that. Now, at this point, I do think we should mention that this issue is not only a weird, funny, ridiculous issue, it's also a direct parody of something DC Comics was doing at the time. Right. If the name Gene Bomb sounds familiar, it's because you've seen it before, spelled G-E-N-E, as part of the DC invasion storyline. Yeah, so in that one, an alien coalition led by aliens called the Dominators, who coincidentally look a lot like the leaders in this issue, were attacking Earth to try to, you know, stop the threat of the metahumans, and they invaded starting in Australia and had their own, like you said, gene bomb. Was it just a naked guy named Gene in a tube? Uh, I'm afraid not. It was a little bit more, you know, bomb-looking. Oh, so like genetics, Gene. Yeah, not Gene from Bob's Burgers, for instance. (gasps) Although that would be pretty amazing. That would be an amazing bomb. I feel like that might actually sow more chaos than the Jean Grey version. Also more fart noises, probably. Yes, so what was going on... Oh, it would have a keytar. So what was going on in DC's invasion storyline was that what these aliens really wanted to do was mess with the metahuman gene that was in many superheroes and was basically DC's answer to mutants. Wait, he's a metahuman? That explains so much. So, knowing that this thing is, in fact, one big parody in addition to being one big joke, let's get plotty. Meanwhile, in the outback, what are the gentlemen up to? Havoc has taken over for his erstwhile sister-in-law slash girlfriend slash 
you know, mind-controlled enslaver supervillain Madeline Pryor, and he is currently running the X-Men's computers and surveillance equipment and brooding while looking like Jack Burton, as we mentioned. He's also watching everybody on screens, including Storm, who is up in the sky taking a rain shower naked, so, you know, take a drink. Yeah, that's a thing. It totally is. I imagine that when you end up working X-Men surveillance, you end up just sort of learning to tune out. It's like, oh, yep, Storm's naked again. I mean, she does do that a lot. You remember that one time? She's taking a shower in the middle of the fucking foyer. She did that in that one Leprechaun castle, Cassidy Keep. Yep. X-Men. I love it. X-Men. Leprechauns are watching you shower (laughs) because you're doing it in a public place where there are leprechauns. (laughs) This sentence got complicated. X-Men. And, um, yeah, Wolverine comes up, talks a little bit about how he doesn't trust machines. Or shower in public places in front of leprechauns. I mean, that's subtext. He probably would. In the meantime, Dazzler has been using some of her many skillets to give Colossus some makeup. Because, as you may recall, Colossus has been stuck in his metal form ever since the mutant massacre. So if he's going to look normal, if he's not going to stand out like, you know, a big eight-foot-tall metal dude, he's got to be more skin-colored. Well, she's doing this to a specific end. Wolverine has decided that since the ladies all got to go to the mall, the guys need to get out too. They're also all going stir-crazy, and they don't all have their own ongoing series where they can blow off steam. So... They're going to go drinking. And so they teleport out to a bar in Sydney. And I love Colossus here. The dialogue in this issue is so much fun. Comrades, I do not wish to be the pooper of this party, but the last time I let Wolverine walk me into such an establishment, I ran into Juggernaut. I love the way he phrases that. I do not wish to be the pooper of this party. It's so great. I'm going to start talking like that. And Wolverine follows this up with, and a loverly time was had by all. I mean, it kind of was. And so, yeah, they go and get their various drinks and do their various things, which includes Longshot being surrounded by women, because that's what happens when you have a blonde mullet that amazing. Havoc is uh, not so pleased by this, or at least finds a new reason to mope. That guy adds a whole new dimension to the phrase, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. And does it with all his heart, too. Uh, Hearts. uh, Sorry, I forgot. He's got two. I had two gals and no heart. Go figure. So he just sits there and bemoans his fate. Well, yeah, because if you bemoan lying down, you get scotch in your hair. Was that a Why I Hate Saturn reference? Yes, it was. God, Why I Hate Saturn is so good. It's amazing. It is. And actually, wait, wasn't Kyle Baker an inker on some of this X stuff in this era? Yeah, but not this issue. He was mostly on New Mutants, I think. Well, there is a connection. That's the important part. I also enjoy that Havoc seems to get five o'clock shadow from having his second beer. Well, he had it earlier. Like, it just comes and goes arbitrarily. His haircut also changes pretty radically and randomly over the course of this issue. Secondary mutation? Inconsistent inking? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, yes, as this is all going on, the X-Men are having a good old time. The aliens invade. They come in, just like in DC's invasion, through Australia. And the Australians give zero fucks. I love it. Like, you know, some of them put more shrimp on the Barbie. Some complain about how the alien tanks are driving on the wrong side of the road. Some of them share beers with the alien soldiers and complain about their old commanding officers. Yeah, the mayor of Sydney happily turns over the keys to the city because he's overdue for a vacation, but regretfully informs them that while he too would have liked to have blown up the Sydney Opera House, they are going to have to rebuild it because it's already on all the tourist brochures. That's the tone we have here. Is it me or is this like a very Excalibur issue of X-Men? It is, and I genuinely don't know whether they're playing to a specific Australian stereotype, whether this is one, or if it's just a specific comedy trope being played. Because, you know, you mentioned it reminds you of sort of how grudgingly matter-of-factly the British deal with alien and extra-dimensional invasions in Excalibur, but that's very much, again, playing on a specific cultural stereotype dealing with the supernatural with mild disapproval and a stiff upper lip and carrying on about business. And I have no idea whether there is some kind of stereotype I have not heard of that Australians are just super chill about, like, alien invasions. Between this episode and the fact that we have a surprisingly large number of Australian listeners, I kind of feel like we should learn more about Australia. I have Australian friends, I say. (laughs) Oh, that's never a good sentence. (laughs) No, I know, weirdly, like, I know a lot about Australian, like, history and politics and very little about it culturally. Hmm. Well, perhaps someday we will fix that. Perhaps. I would like to go there. It's full of things that will maul you and eat you. So I'm told. And that's aside from the alien invaders. Speaking of, so some of my favorite alien invaders, at least insofar as how they interact with the X-Men, are the C-Cubed, the Cosmic Cutie Commandos. Right. These are hot chicks with wings. They are. They're wearing weird leather that looks kind of like the leather that Jessica Drew was wearing when she got possessed by the Black Blade in that Wolverine arc we just talked about. So, like, a lot of lacing. A lot of sort of strips of leather. Hella grommets. And Longshot, who's, you know, fighting them as they try to attack him, realizes that their wings are synthetic. They're just sort of strapped to their backs. And they decide they're going to have to kill him. This is a secret. None must know our darkest shame. That you fly on artificial wings? That's silly. Our wings make us special. But if word spreads that they are devices, everyone will be able to do it. 
We won't be unique any longer. Those we have soared over will make fun, and their mockery will be more than our pride can bear. Better by far to strike out preemptively to ensure that all will be too full of terror at the mere thought of us. Who cares about the mechanics? You can fly! The sky's so big, would it really hurt so much to share? Sure, people will laugh. With joy at being part of this most wonderful of experiences. Wait, wait. So are you telling me that if there are video games with princesses in them, there'll still be ones with middle-aged, perpetually five o'clock shadowed white dude badasses? It is a little bit strange just how much this does predict a lot of the nerddom gatekeeping that we've seen in the recent past. So hey, nice work, Chris Claremont. Well, a lot of gatekeeping around pretty much every type of privilege pretty much ever. I mean, it's the idea that, in fact, there can just be more. It's not a zero-sum thing. And that right there is part of why Longshot is one of my very favorite X-Men characters of all time, because he's basically teaching the bad guys how to share by flirting and just being really nice. He's diffusing a conflict, not with his fists or, you know, little throwing blades, but just by being a super great dude. He's basically sexy Johnny Karate. You are not wrong. Longshot is unquestionably the Andy Dwyer of the X-Men. I feel so good about this. Do you think that he and Dazzler run around pretending to be Burt Macklin and Judith Snakehole? You know, that's surprisingly easy to picture. It really, really is. Oh, man. Oh, I want this to be real. So anyway, amid all of this, the alien leaders, the weird green ones that are, you know, parodies of those DC alien leaders, they're furious at their invasion not being taken seriously. The aliens on the planet are challenging Wolverine to poker and Havoc to a duel for the fate of the planet. But the fact is, the Australians are just sort of good-naturedly meh about the whole thing. Yeah, so Wolverine and Havoc are sort of not exactly the last ones standing, but the last ones who really particularly care. Wolverine manages to bluff his way through a poker game with a guy who basically looks like Superman. Yeah, the guy has a full house and Wolverine's got a pair of deuces, but he's betting his life on the line and being super intimidating so the dude folds. It's pretty great. We should mention that there's, I think, a Daily Planet cameo in this issue, too. Uh, there is, yeah, briefly. It's kind of weird. But it's a TV station, I believe, here. And Havoc politely suggests that if they're going to fight, they should take it outside. The folks on the ground decide he's probably the champion of the world and he should fight them. The ones in the ship decide that they've really had enough of this messing around and they're just going to go ahead and blow up Earth because obviously there's more going on than they think. They're really nonplussed by Australia's response. The X-Men have caught them wildly off guard. And of course, there's all the history involving Galactus and stuff. At which point, Havoc just sort of blows up their ship. And thus, the gene bomb is not released, all of the various alien ground troops are not killed, and this giant alien military invasion just sort of isn't. It's sort of like a really perfect crossover between Roadhouse and Wild Zero. Holy crap, you're totally right. Now I want to watch each of those movies simultaneously, like one in my left eye and ear and one in the right eye and ear. I would come out of it a changed man. I would come out of it something. I would say that the driving philosophy of Wild Zero is probably a bit better, a bit more productive. And so, yes, having gotten, you know, satisfactorily schnockered and having fended off an alien invasion and having just had a grand old time in a bar in Sydney, the male X-Men head back home, at which point Storm is kind of scoldy because, you know, she's been watching the news, which is no longer filtered by Madeline Pryor, thankfully, and has seen what's happened. And Logan just dips her down and kisses her and says it was great. And I love this scene because, okay, sort of what it reminded me of the opposite of was the kiss in that one panel at the beginning of one of the Inferno issues, where Wolverine dips Jean Grey and kisses her totally against her will. But in this case, it's not that. So, here is the object lesson from that contrast. This is the do-don't airline guide to situations. Don't grab the woman with whom you had a largely one-sided flirtation but were never romantically involved and never consented to any kind of romantic involvement and whom you haven't seen in several years, who thinks you're dead and you think she's dead, grab and passionately kiss her without any kind of preamble against her will. Do do that in a jesting way with someone with whom it is consistent with the tone of your relationship, who is an occasional ongoing casual romantic and or sexual partner of yours as established in continuity in a context where they have an effective and easy way to get away from you and you have telegraphed your motion fairly clearly and are confident that it is consistent with their boundaries as established in your long-term relationship with them. This has been your lesson on consent by possessed and non-possessed Wolverine. So there was actually this long thread on Twitter, which I know you don't use, but um, about Wolverine teaching sex ed at uh-huh. the, the Jean Grey school a while ago. I could only imagine. It went on some amazing tangents, and it involved the eventual theory that he had a secret degree in the field of banana repair. This sounds like a very confusing conversation. I mean, it was Twitter. It's amazing. It's all storified. Chris Haley ended up illustrating it. But anyway, after all this has happened in our denouement, we have Wolverine suggesting, well, basically, Havoc and Wolverine meltdown. 
Yo, Alex, got a notion for a road trip. I know this place in Mexico. Rowdiest cantina in the Gulf of California. We'll see who drinks who under the table. So there, in fact, is our confirmed timeline. Well, there's half of it. We're going to get a reference to the other end of it in the next issue, so we know it takes place between 245 and 246. Speaking of the next issue, so the next couple of issues are a two-parter. Not nearly as much happens in terms of sheer content of story, but I guess continuity-wise, a lot more does. There's also a bit of build-up for stories we're not going to get to for a while now, who we'll talk about a bit later. For now, we are on 246, and I hate this cover. I hate this cover so much. For one thing, Master Mold's coloration is truly garish, and I say this as someone who is me. Yeah, I have more of a problem with sexy unconscious rogue. Yeah, not my favorite trope, and something Sylvester definitely falls into sometimes. I've talked about this before, but I think it's been a while, and it's something that I frankly cannot harp on enough because it makes me so angry and it's such a consistent thing in superhero comics, which is the idea that, you know, women have to be sexy all the time. The way you draw women in superhero comics is sexy and that this extends to contexts in which they're severely injured, unconscious, in a good deal of danger, etc. And that ends up basically functionally sexualizing those contexts. I used to keep track of sexy dead girls in comics, like just as a sort of spite self-flagellation thing. And it got so depressing that I ended up stopping. Like, it's so goddamn pervasive, maybe slightly less now than it was back in the issues that we're talking about or even five to ten years ago. But it's still really common. And I really, really hate it. Like, I don't think that there is a visual conceit in comic books that I like less than this one. Well, as long as we have Xenoscope comics, then love, which is to say that trope, will find a way. God fucking damn it. (laughs) Basically. This specifically is why we cannot have nice things. I know I say that a lot, and it's always true. But yeah, this comics industry, this right here. But anyway, The Siege Perilous. The Siege Perilous technically comes from Arthurian legend, This version is its own thing. It was given to the X-Men by Roma when she helped them fake their deaths in the aftermath of the fall of the mutants. And it's basically a portal that if you go through it, it kind of judges you and resets your life based on kind of your karma, essentially. You know, whether you've been a good person or a bad person and who you are and what you deserve. That's what it is at this point in this incarnation. It does slightly different things in other series and at other points in time. Right now, it's also roughly Palm Pilot-sized. And is being held by Alison Blair, Dazzler, shining her light into it and seeing all of her alternate selves, which I believe we also saw in Uncanny X-Men Annual number 11, which we covered in episode 80, when she was going through all of the people she could have been in that weird crystal castle. Yeah, these are the same versions of her. There's High Powered Lawyer, Dazzler, there's Homeless Dazzler, and so forth. And one of the ones who pops out is, in fact, a zombie version of her who manifests in the room and tells her that she's innately tied to death. Except there was a weird thing later where she couldn't die for a while, so, you know, you can probably pretty much ignore that. Yeah, her and Cannonball, occasionally the fact that they're both supposed to be immortal comes back, and then nobody talks about it again for a while. Rumor actually has it that around this time, Claremont was actually planning to kill Dazzler, but then backed off from that. But as Dazzler is doing this, as she's having yet another of her dazzly bejeweled existential crises, she notices that the hand that was holding the Siege Perilous has started bleeding, which is weird and seems like a pointless plot point here, but in fact, will come back later. I assumed at first that she was just gripping it too tightly because it's sharp. It's got spikes. It actually reminds me a little of those uh, death phones from Metalocalypse that are deliberately uncomfortable to hold. Oh my god, it totally is. Yeah, It totally, absolutely is. With interdimensional powers instead of very, very long voicemail prompts. I've actually got a cardboard one about that size. A Siege Perilous? Yeah. That's kind of awesome. It is super awesome. It is the nicest thing ever. I was at a convention and I was really stressed out. I was having a really, really crap day and I tweeted something about it and someone showed up at my panel with this little cardboard Siege Perilous that's described on the back as the self-care Siege Perilous for when you just really need to get away from everything for a while. (laughs) Or permanent is the case maybe. No, it's great, and I kept it. Um, and, you know, I'm saving it for what I fight Reavers, or possibly Master Mold. But anyway, while Dazzler's freaking out, we have Storm and Wolverine having a conversation themselves. Uh, yeah, and this is what places the other half of Meltdown, because Storm finds Wolverine in the bathroom, trying to reproduce the phenomenal, phenomenal Kent Williams hairstyle that yeah. he sported in Meltdown. He's spiking his hair into these, like, comically long spikes, which in Meltdown, you know, it fit the visual style, when Sylvester's drawing, perhaps a little less. Yeah, man, artists taking on each other's visual conceits is pretty much never not funny. And this is just a brief lampooning, and they mention a couple other events in that series that, again, very solidly place this on the other side for anyone who hasn't been reading it. So you know that he and Havoc went to Mexico and caught bubonic plague. You know, just between issues. It's cool. For now, Wolverine is taking an extended leave of absence from the X-Men because he's got some business to attend to elsewhere, presumably in his own individual series. 
And he's actually going to be gone from the X-Men, from the X-Titles, for about six months. And this was two things. First of all, it was an example of Chris Claremont doing his damnedest to make the fact that Wolverine was in multiple books simultaneously make sense, which, like, nobody tries to do these days for the most part. So what do you think of that? Because on one hand, it's cool, and I like the effort toward continuity, but on the other hand... I feel like there's so much else that doesn't make sense. There's so much else that's not clearly choreographed. And it kneecaps storytelling options, especially when you have multiple writers working on books. Like with this, it's still mostly basically Claremont and Simonson doing the X line. But when you've got a wider spread of folks working on the books or a wider line of books, that particular conceit feels much more forced to me than just throwing in the character wherever you want them and assuming that things somehow mesh up or don't. Yeah, I have kind of mixed feelings about it. I mean, I think when there's something really major going on with another character, like if they're in, say, another dimension or have had this major, major change occur with the way their powers works or whether they're living or dead or something along those lines. In that case, I like it when it's acknowledged. Otherwise, eh, I'm not too worried about it. Well, and you have shipping schedules and stuff disrupting that, too, because I remember when we were doing the where is Wolverine dead and where is he not watch. Oh, right. Yeah. Or the end of Secret Wars, for Mm -hmm. instance, while Secret Wars was still sort of going on. But anyway, the second thing that's going on here with Wolverine going on a leave of absence is that we're seeing the beginning of basically the dissolution of the X-Men. This is a really weird era of X-Men we're getting into post-Inferno. And one of the major themes of it is that the team is kind of falling apart. We're going to see the team decrease continually until it's almost nobody. Wolverine is the first one to go and probably the one to leave with the least sort of associated trauma. While this is going on, some of the other X-Men are training, all the other male members, actually. And uh, I do enjoy that Dazzler shows up at this point, and while Havoc's been attempting to zap all of Longshot spikes that he throws, she very precisely does so with her light beams and then kisses Havoc on the cheek. Their platonic rivalry is one of my favorite dynamics in this era. It only gets explored occasionally, but I always love that little bit between the two of them. Well, I like that it's pretty low-key. It never turns into a big explosive thing. It's just that the two of them are sort of perpetually kind of gently elbowing each other in the ribs and going... Yeah, you think that's good. Check this out. Exactly. So as the X-Men are doing their X-Men thing, they're not exactly a baseball game, but might as well be the equivalent out there in the Outback. We meet a new character back in New York City, and that is a woman named Sharon Kelly. If that last name sounds familiar, it's because she is the new wife of Senator Robert Kelly. You know, the guy that came up with the Mutant Registration Act, the guy that was at the center of Days of Future Past, the guy that has the most horrifying action figure of all time based on his appearance in X-Men 1 where he got all melty. I don't know if that's an action figure. Oh, it's sort of a squishy, grossy figure. It's really upsetting. It totally is. One of our listeners gave it to us at a convention, and we treasure slash are horrified by it. I keep it in a bag and never take it out because I'm afraid of it. (laughs) Pretty much. I was going to put it in a care package, but I think that it's full of corn syrup and, like, alien eggs. That might qualify as liquid, fragile, or perishable. I think it might be all three of those things. Or possibly explosives. It's a really unsettling toy. It's kind of amazing. But anyway, we get to know a little bit about who Sharon is here. She actually used to be a servant at the Hellfire Club, which is where her and her husband are right now. And so she's talking to some of her former co-workers who are still in their maid outfits about how happy she is, about how great it is to be married to this amazing man. And immediately she is super, super likable. Yeah, she's pretty. She's sympathetic. She's young. She's a new character. She's married to a, you know, establishment villain She is so doomed. She is definitely going to die. Yeah, it's pretty clear from the start. Now, the reason that she and her husband are at the Hellfire Club is not just for nostalgia, but because he's talking to Sebastian Shaw, who he's talked to before about various anti-mutant plans. Shaw is proposing something called the Nimrod Program. Remember Nimrod, that weird pink and white robot who came back from the future to kill a bunch of mutants? Yeah, apparently this is the inception of that program. Now, Kelly is a smart dude, so he starts to object, you know, what if we lose control of this thing? It could go really badly, but he's interrupted by Sharon, who, once again, being spunky and likable, comes in in her old Hellfire uniform, sort of stopping him in his tracks and causing a really entertainingly drawn spit take. It's truly a shame, though, that you gentlemen don't have an equivalent costume. Then we ladies might have ourselves some real fun. Again, Sharon Kelly is great. We love her. And thus, Jay, you're totally right. Pretty doomed. I'm trying to imagine Senator Kelly dressed up in an equivalent outfit, but I'm just seeing the melty toy version of him. Oh, God, no. See, I was just going to wear Sebastian Shaw would occasionally go into battle wearing tiny briefs, boots, and a sash. That's a hard look to pull off unless you're Sebastian Shaw. Like, I feel like you've got to have a very specific type of confidence. And I'm not sure Kelly really has that going on. I think if he grew out those big-ass sideburns that Sebastian Shaw has and had a little bow holding his ponytail back, like, that's really most of what you need right there. 
It's a really good point. Yeah, I feel like I could do that if I ditched part of the beard and was substantially more muscular and less flabby. No, no. Again, pulling off the Shaw in battle with the boots and the sash look is really more about attitude than anything else. (laughs) Just act like you belong there in battle with briefs and a sash. Exactly. Now, meanwhile, another character, or rather two characters in one body, are doing their own thing. Carol Danvers is still in control of Rogue, and she is the Vietnam Memorial Wall. Yeah, she is specifically leaving her Medal of Honor by the part of the wall that her brother's name is on. And she's also headed down to check her old apartment, which she's told her landlord that, you know, Carol is out of the country Carol's friend Rogue is coming to check in, but it's actually Carol in Rogue's body. There are a lot of layers going on, and she's there to pick up her stuff. And again, remember, this is not the real Carol Danvers. This is sort of a copy of Carol Danvers' identity from when Rogue absorbed her years ago. And once again, we see both Carol and Rogue being made very sympathetic. I mean, they're sharing the same body, and they're effectively enemies because each of them wants control of it, but you really can't hate either of them. Yeah, they're frustrated with each other. They don't like sharing a body, but they do kind of look out for each other. And Carol runs into Psylocke really quickly, and Psylocke brings up something that it's really easy to forget at this point, because she, you know, like Colossus, is drawn to look the same age as the rest of the members of the team, which is that Rogue is really young. It's her body, Carol. It isn't my fault I'm stuck here, Bets, and I don't see where it's any of your business calling me on it. I'm the team telepath. The good of that team, our mutual and interdependent survival, makes it my business. Storm put you up to this? Carol, you and Rogue are bound, permanently. Whatever the cause, that is the reality. Rogue's a child. From her, we expected this, but why the devil are you being so difficult? Know what I wish? That I could cut a deal with her to have complete control for a year. Just a year. Then I'd finagle my way onto the Red Sox. I'd cover center field like nobody born and hit the ball so hard, so well, the Yankees would be blasted to dust. A year. To win the pennant and World Series for Fenway. You could ask. Never happen. Probably be disqualified. Because you're a woman? Because I'm a mutant. People would claim my powers would give me an unfair advantage, and people would be right. Times like this, it feels like we endure all the grief there is, but we're not allowed to enjoy any of the fun. Perhaps that's the price we pay for being who and what we are. Perhaps that isn't enough. Yeah, getting a quiet moment amid the carnage and chaos to come, for these pair of characters that don't really talk very often, I love this. I love that we get to see so much more of Carol Danvers inside Rogue's head, especially given what's to come. Yeah, I feel like similarly to the Sharon Kelly stuff, this is giving us a bit of foreshadowing that's maybe not as obvious except in retrospect. And what some of that foreshadowing is referring to is the fact that our buddy Nimrod, once again, pink and white anti-mutant robot, shows up in Manhattan kind of out of nowhere, saps a bunch of criminals, disintegrating them and the cocaine they have, but keeping their money to help clean up the neighborhood and help the victims of their crimes. And I love this about Nimrod. Like that he's just super violent community service Nimrod? He kind of is. I mean, you know, yes, he horribly murders anybody who commits crimes, but he really cares about, you know, people who don't commit crimes and thus don't get horribly killed. Nimrod kind of tries. Nimrod is the sentinel who I think has best internalized the spirit behind the protect humanity drive. And part of how he does that is by being in a human form very often himself. He, in fact, is a super sentinel with an alter ego, a human self. And that's where we see him next, at the construction site he works at, doing, you know, construction, which I'm sure is a multi-step process and a very complicated and I know nothing about, when he finds a weird little piece of machinery. Do you think he's ever accidentally ended up on the same crew as Sigurd Jarlsson? Oh, Sigurd Jarlsson, Thor's construction worker alter ego? Yeah. Yes. And in fact, you know, they actually remind me of one another in kind of weird ways. Huh. Well, they were both these super beings who were trying to just see what it was like to be human. Because this was after Thor lost his Donald Blake persona. So he basically just put on a pair of glasses and put his hair into a ponytail, like a big burly Viking Clark Kent. And so seeing him, you know, see how the other half lives, or the Midgard half as the case may be, was great and humanized him. And seeing Nimrod do the same, as much as Nimrod is not exactly sympathetic, kind of does the same thing as well. Yeah, Nimrod is like the guy you meet who's really awesome and you hang out a lot. And then when you've been really good friends for like two years, you find out he's just unbefuckingly racist. And then the friendship ends horribly and there's a bunch of murder. As happens. But yeah, so he finds a piece of machinery in this construction site, which detonates, blowing the whole thing up. And very quickly, the familiar master mold, the daddy sentinel that poops out little sentinels, shows up. Wait, what? Didn't we last see him getting his ass kicked in Alaska? Well, technically, in the Marvel Universe, we last saw him fighting the power pack, but apparently what's left of him is this tiny little bit of machinery which has somehow interacted with Nimrod's mechanical nature to create a big pink-and-white version of Master Mold. That can't be good. 
No, no. I mean, that's a terrible color scheme for a robot that size. It's going to get dirty in minutes. It especially can't be good because this new Master Mold Nimrod hybrid has the logic that, all right, my prime directive is to kill all mutants. Mutants are offshoots of the human race, so I need to kill all humans. I need to kill everybody. You're the worst robot. He totally is, or at least up there. But thankfully, you remember how Psylocke and Carol Danvers in Rogue's body are right nearby? They show up. Rogue, in fact, is wearing the old Ms. Marvel outfit that Carol happened to get from her old apartment. And there's a big fight. It doesn't go too well, because Master Mold is a big, scary, mutant-killing robot. And one of the first casualties, as she's trying to help Rogue and her husband, is, in fact, Sharon Kelly. It's really unfortunate. Once again, we knew this was going to happen, but it still hurts to see. Like, she still was written well enough even to make her sympathetic knowing what her fate was going to be. Thankfully, the X-Men have a telepath, who is one of the people here, and they also have a teleporter, which is to say Gateway, so pretty soon this two-on-one robot fight turns into a seven-on-one robot fight. Well, kind of seven-on-two, because Nimrod's consciousness is still there within Master Mold. They're kind of playing tug-of-war over control. And this is a really cool battle, and one of the things that's unique about it is that Master Mold, being mechanical, can't see the X-Men. They still have that thing from when they got resurrected by Roma, where machines can't detect them, which means it can't see Storm's super rad new version of her outfit. Oh yeah, man, Storm has a great outfit here. She's got, it looks actually kind of like a superhero version of Yukio's default gear, the jacket open really deep with the lapels and the tight pants. Anyway, the X-Men kick Master Mold's ass, partially because it can't see them, and partially because the Nimrod part of its consciousness is resisting assimilation. And I love Rogue's line here. It situates this comic so firmly into 1989. Hey, we X-Men bad or what? Yeah, uh, Carol has been knocked out, so Rogue is back in control at this point. We also see Longshot being kind of uncharacteristically mopey. And Dazzler heading off to comfort him. Hey, Longshot, why the glooms, cutie? I wasn't much helps you against the robot. I guess I feel sort of useless. Some scraps are going to be like that, hun. You're right. Your luck and acrobatic skills aren't much use against a giant super-juiced robot. Neither is Psylocke's telepathy. This caper was strictly for the heavy mob. But next time, it could be sneaks and stealth that win the day. That's why we're a team, silly goose, to balance each other out. Suppose a piece doesn't fit. But you do, so there's no problem. Teamwork, and also I love their relationship. I love everything about Longshot, and also kind of Dazzler. We need you, Johnny Karate. Unfortunately, things are not heartwarming everywhere because Sharon Kelly is at death's door, and Senator Kelly is begging Psylocke, who's nearby, to save her. I mean, she's a super-powered being, right? She's got to be able to save his wife. And Psylocke's like, yeah, wrong power set. I'm really sorry. And all Kelly really grasps is that it's mutants. There's a mutant fight going on. And now this purple-haired lady won't save his wife. Fuck mutants. Mutants are the worst. Let's greenlight the Nimrod program. Yeah, that does come up after this. But not before Master Mold reassembles itself, this time with Nimrod's ability to adapt and also, strangely, to see mutants in a way that non-machines shouldn't be able to do. Well, Nimrod has consciousness. Betsy is able to sort of telepathically connect with him, which she can't with Master Mold, and she brings that up specifically. Nimrod is sentient. He has his own mind. Master Mold is freaked out. And I love the fact that Nimrod has gone into his sort of human guy's version of this, who is a Hispanic man. Darn straight, hombre. Go for broke, lady. Nail this walking junk pile. But my favorite part of the fight is probably what Rogue does. Rogue absorbs Colossus's power, flies into mid-orbit, and then slams back down to punch Master Mold. Using the fire from her re-entry as part of this impact, she turns herself into a giant meteor. Over-the-top fights make me so freaking happy. Meanwhile, Master Mold and Nimrod are still struggling for control because Master Mold's prime directive is to get rid of mutants. Nimrod's secondary directive is to get rid of mutants, but that's slave to his prime directive, which is to protect humans. And given that Master Mold wants to kill all the humans, you know, this isn't really going to work out. So Nimrod points out, they're supposed to be machines, but they can see the X-Men. Machines shouldn't be able to do that. That means they've evolved. That means they've mutated. They're mutants, and thus, based on Master Mold's programming, they need to destroy themselves. They manage to grab Rogue, and meanwhile, Dazzler's still got the cell phone-sized Siege Perilous, and she decides she's going to use it to take these guys out. She throws it at them, and they're about to get sucked through, but unfortunately, they've got Rogue as well. And Rogue says, do it. We need to take them out. Fire. Just as Master Mold decides to let go, having finally been convinced by Nimrod that what they need to do is to destroy themselves, and so, through the Siege Perilous they go, and through the Siege Perilous, Rogue goes. And that's the last the X-Men are going to see of Rogue for a really long time. That thing we mentioned earlier about the X-Men basically being disassembled at this point? 
this is the next step of this. Rogue has been a member of the team for well over 100 issues, and now she's not anymore. She's gone through this weird mirror portal thing that's going to basically overwrite her, make her a new person. And it's harsh. I mean, we love this character. We've come to love even Carol Danvers. And now she's gone in a way that is seemingly, and in fact, damn near close to, permanent. But thankfully, things are a little bit more lighthearted back at the Outback because Jubilee, who the X-Men still don't know is there, is exploring and bored out of her mind. This kid needs stimulation. She's part of the MTV generation. I mean, I think she is. Is that how it lines up time-wise? I think she is. Well, maybe. She sort of knows her music. Who's Dazzler? The blonde I saw, I think. Jeez, she's staying with Lila Cheney. She must be ancient music for old fogies, you know, like in their 20s at least. Oh, Jubilee, you were so terrible and so great simultaneously. Oh, she's delightful. Yeah, she goes through Dazzler's closet, tries on a bunch of clothes, and ends up stealing a fancy red ball gown. And while that's going on, it's time for an onion-like collection of layers of villainy, because like you mentioned earlier, Jay, Senator Kelly has gone back to Shaw and basically says, you know what? Mutants have to be stopped. Let's greenlight Project Nimrod. Whatever it takes, we're going to make it happen. Totally unaware of the fact that it was partially Nimrod that was responsible for his wife's death. Kelly and Shaw are being watched by the Reavers. Yeah, and this is a new set of Reavers. Not only is it, you know, Bonebreaker, but it's also Lady Deathstrike, Wolverine's rival, and the Hellfire Club guards that got all cyborg that we saw her with that time they fought Wolverine in the snow, and in fact, Donald Pierce, who has been broken out of the prison in Kentucky where he was being held since the New Mutants graphic novel. It's basically a whole bunch of evil cyborgs, all with a huge mat on for the X-Men. I'm really bummed that they didn't name their group the Brotherhood of Evil Cyborgs. That'd be pretty great as well. But Reavers is just so smooth. It just rolls right off the tongue. Reavers. The Reavers are watching Kelly and Shaw, but who's watching the Reavers? The Reavers, in fact, are being watched by some characters we haven't seen in the immediate past. Well, no, we saw them in Inferno. They were just in in the uh, Avengers Inferno stuff. But those being our favorite egg-shaped psychopath, Nanny, and the Orphan Maker, the leader of her Lost Boys and Girls. They're watching the Reavers threaten the X-Men, and Nanny's so concerned. She wants to protect the X-Men. We know how she protects people, so this is definitely concerning. No, this is weird, because we know how she protects children. She doesn't protect adults. She will happily kill adults. And this is the first time we've seen her express any kind of concern for them. What she's actually planning to do, we will eventually find out, is de-age the X-Men to children. She'll get away with it in one case, not otherwise. And this kind of, you know, I got to thinking, and I realized, so Nanny is terrible, but her heart's in the right place. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to think of whether there was a context or a universe where she could be redeemed. And I realized that the way you fix Nanny, the way you just make her into a straight-up hero, is you drop her into the Mojoverse. Right, because then she could team up with the X-Babies, and we wouldn't feel at all bad about her killing all of the terrible, oppressive people there. Exactly. The Mojoverse is a lot more violent as a default. It could be sort of like the ultra-violent Muppet Babies, the X-Babies, and then Nanny. Except instead of just seeing stripes, stockings, and shoes, you see, you know, like, the bottom half of an egg-shaped mad scientist. I love everything about this plan. Let's bring back Anna Senti, get her to write it, it'll be great. Have we made any Dr. Robotnik jokes about Nanny yet? No, but we'll save them for next time, because in the meantime, you've got questions. Damien Rock asks on Tumblr, What's up with Wolverine's hair? I get that it serves for something of a silhouette, but it sort of got out of hand. By the 90s, he had a mane that was threatening to consume small children if it wasn't watched closely. And then I look at his sideways spires and meltdown, and I'm at a loss. What happened? Art happened. So, basically, Wolverine's always had an exaggerated and somewhat implausible hairstyle. But how cartoonish it gets is mostly a byproduct of both period fashion and individual art styles. And then new artists come in and model their baseline on the previous artist's exaggerated stylistic takes. So, you know, see also comparably rogue's hair, Batman's ears, Power Girl's breasts, and so forth. It's like D&D or Magic the Gathering power creep, but, you know, hair creep. Exactly. He kind of is a hairy creep. He is. Well, there we go. Brock asks via email, Are there any X-Men runs you'd like to see continued in the vein of the X-Men and X-Factor Forever series? Uh, For those not in the know, X-Men Forever and X-Factor Forever were when Chris Claremont and Louise Simonson, respectively, basically picked up where their seminal runs left off and talked about what would happen then if they had stayed on the books. So, for those, you know, I referenced New X-Men earlier, the one from the mid-2000s with Surge and Hellion and all of them, and I would love to see them have become a bigger deal in the Marvel Universe. I would have loved to have seen this younger team of X-Men actually take over for the older team, which never happens. It's unfortunate, you know? What if Cyclops and Storm and everybody were just to retire because they got old if the timeline actually happened the way in a way that would make sense? And, like, Surge was the new face of the mutant superhero world. That would be amazing! So, I say that. Greg Pak's Extreme X-Men, because it's awesome. I still have to read that run. I'd be curious uh, what would happen if that was sort of the status quo going forward. Oh my god, it's so good. Wolverine is the governor of Canada, and he has a mustache, and he's in love with Hercules. 
This would be a very strange timeline going forward. It would be the best timeline. Well, timelines, because it's a timeline-hopping series. That's the fundamental premise of it. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, In episode 113's Q&A, you talk about color. I've always wondered if you think Storm's 1990s Jim Lee costume is supposed to be black or white slash silver. I always read it as black with white highlights slash reflections, but I often see it described as white or silver by others. Do you have a definitive answer? Yeah, I believe that her Jim Lee outfit is in fact supposed to be white, and most of the time it's portrayed as being a white costume. That being said, there are definitely exceptions, maybe just coloring errors, but we couldn't really say for sure. I'm specifically thinking of the cover to Uncanny X-Men 289, where it looks very, very gray based on the coloring of everything else on the cover. Yeah, I mean, it's not super consistent, but most of the time it's white, and it's fairly clearly supposed to be white based on the way that other stuff gets shaded in. We are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement from fictional characters on the air. I am turning things over today. I'm not actually sure to whom I'm turning them over, but it's either Master Mulder Nimrod. This unit's prime directive is clear. All mutants must be exterminated. Listen, hombre. Chris Carr and Andrew Sharp may be mutants, but after all that's changed, so are we. If they die, we do too. Error. That sounds terrible. I hate this plan. Maybe it's time to evolve, then. Forget this extermination stuff. It's time for construction work and violent community service. Come, Chris and Andrew. Acquire a hard hat and follow this unit to unorthodox robotic self-actualization. Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. This podcast is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, the New Mutants and the Exterminators will say goodbye to the X-Mansion and hello to ship. As Magneto completes his villainous heel turn, Gossamer goes home, and Boom Boom summons a sea monster. Mm-hmm.